Brother Taylor in particular already expressed, we're glad to have you here this morning. It's good to look out here at the beginning of a new year and uh, see so many of our regulars here sort of back after the busy holiday season, back from all their travels. It's good to see some visitors here with us, and I hope that you stick around and we get the chance to meet you after services today. For all of us, I hope the time we spend here together will be strengthening, uplifting, and, and edifying for us as we gather together to encourage one another and to worship God. The original plan for our sermon this morning was to lay out a sort of new theme or new vision for this coming year. We want to focus particularly in 2020 on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow in Jesus' steps. All of our lessons, particularly on Sundays this year, will revolve around that. On Sunday evening, we're going to be working through a new book called His Life that attempts to holistically look at Jesus throughout all of Scripture. On Sunday morning, for the better part of the year, I'm going to endeavor to preach through the Gospel of Mark so that we can see how that story shapes us to be followers of Jesus. But in light of recent events in particular, I want to delay that dive into Mark for a week, not in order to divert our attention from following Jesus, but rather to focus on one aspect of following him in particular, one teaching of his that we find in Matthew chapter 5. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up there this morning because that's where we'll be spending the bulk of our time together. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your enemy, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These words of Jesus are some of his most difficult to understand. That's no doubt as true in our own day as it was in his. I don't think that these were easy words at all for that audience listening to him that day. We wonder if it's really possible to do what Jesus is telling us to do here. And if it's really possible, is it even desirable? What would the world look like if we took what he says here seriously? We're also a bit puzzled, perhaps, because in other scriptures we're told things like to resist evil. We're told we're not to love the world or the things in the world. In fact, we're to hate those evil things of the world. And yet here we're told to love our enemies. 
How are we to act and to react when we encounter evil people? We could put a face on that with some of the actors on the world stage, I suppose. What about Kim Jong-un and the way that he oppresses his people? The way that he tortures and kills his enemies in the most horrible ways imaginable? Or what about Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general who was killed by American forces just earlier this week? Or let's make it a little bit more personal. What if somebody comes to my house to steal my TV and I say, go ahead, take it. And you know what, man? Why don't you take my couch too? I want you to have all the comforts of home. What if someone enters our assembly with a firearm intent on killing others? These are not easy questions particularly when we place them here in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And without getting into the sermon in detail, because we could go deeply into that, if we back up to verse number 17, the beginning of this section, Jesus says that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. In other words, the whole big story of Scripture, everything that God was doing in and through and for Israel is summed up in him. And accordingly, in the following verses, he offers his authoritative interpretation of the law, the Torah, summed up in six antitheses. That is, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, we find that six times here. Jesus quotes scripture. He reacts against its misinterpretation. And then he probes behind that to God's intent. So on the one hand, he actually gets at what the Torah was trying to create and teach God's people all along. But then on the other hand, this isn't just what the law was driving at. This is ethics for the kingdom of God, for God's people, for Christians. That is, if we want to follow Jesus, we need to pay attention to what he says here. Now, our text that we read a moment ago is the culmination of these six statements, the one that, in a sense, sums up all the rest of them. But the immediately preceding one is also relevant for our understanding, too, and we're going to look at it a little bit today as well, starting in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Because these are such difficult teachings, sometimes we make excuses about why we shouldn't be expected to obey them. Some have viewed the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaching something that is completely idealistic, something that we can't possibly hope to attain in order to show just how sinful we are and how much we need him. We can't do what he says here. But I'd take you to the conclusion of the sermon. 
particularly the parable of the two builders, where Jesus clearly expects us to do what he says. Whoever hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. But whoever hears them and does them is like that man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storm comes, that house is going to stand. Jesus expects us to do what he says here. Some, on the other hand, have said that, well, these instructions apply only to extremely committed Christians, extraordinary Christians, saints, if you will. They're not for ordinary, everyday people. But Scripture doesn't know of any sort of distinction like that. We could go on giving excuses that people have given down through the centuries of why we're not to take this seriously and obey these words. But Jesus really did speak these words. Jesus really does expect us to hear these words. Jesus really does expect us to obey these words. That means we need to take them seriously. We need to discover what he meant and what he doesn't mean here in our text. What does it mean to love our enemies? Maybe it's more simple to begin with what Jesus doesn't mean here. First of all, Jesus is saying more than just that we need to be pleasant to other people. Sometimes we see this as almost a sort of bland geniality, that Christians are always to be agreeable people who are cheerful and who are smiling and who are nice to others no matter what they do. Uh, If you've ever seen The Simpsons, for instance, were to be Ned Flanders, in other words. That's the way some people sum this up. Or as Tyler Boyd put it in an article I read recently, it's been reduced to, quote, be nice to your grumpy neighbors. But this is much more radical than that. Christian love, love that reflects God, our Heavenly Father, is much more radical than just being amiable. And when we're talking about our enemies here, that goes far beyond people who cut us off in traffic. Secondly, this doesn't mean that we're to allow evil to go unchecked, just lay down helplessly in its face. Loving our enemies, or to go back to verse number 39, resisting the one who's evil, this isn't just laying down and letting evil win. And I think N.T. Wright's translation of this text is helpful here. Uh, This is sort of contained in the word, but he says, don't use violence to resist evil. Now that comes through in the concrete examples that Jesus lays out throughout the rest of this section. You'll notice he doesn't command passivity, just take it. He actually tells us to do something in response. This is active non-resistance. We do something, but we do something completely different from what would ordinarily be expected. We'll come back to this in a moment, but we're talking here about countercultural action. Note this for now. We're not called to do nothing. We're called to do things, and we're called to love our enemies. That's something that has active content. Of course, we need to note third that these don't function as some sort of case law. That is, we don't need to apply these rigidly or legalistically. And in fact, sometimes when people try to object to what Jesus is saying and us really carrying it out, they try to apply it in just those ways. But if we did that, then we'd only need to do what he says here if certain other things are done first. When was the last time someone slapped you on the right cheek? 
When was the last time somebody tried to take your tunic? Or when was the last time that someone tried to compel you to go a mile with them? Unless maybe your spouse is one of those awful runners who's trying to make you run with them here in the new year. Probably not any of these has happened to us. And on the other hand, if we apply these too rigidly, then we might end up like the fellow in the old story who had been a a brawler. He'd thrown down a lot, and he became a Christian. And he was there, and some people were trying to incite him, and they hit him there on the right cheek, and he said, the Lord says to turn the other cheek. And he turned it to them, and they hit him again. And then he said, well, he didn't say anything after that and proceeded to beat the tar out of them. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Instead, he's giving us windows through which we can view the type of love that he expects for us to have. You see, we might do all of these things legalistically. We might go the second mile, and we might give our cloak, and we might turn the other cheek and still not have the quality of love that Jesus wants us to have. On the other hand, none of those specific circumstances may ever arise But these are only examples, glimpses of what Jesus intends for his people to be like. The sort of love that we're to have and exhibit as his followers. Finally, Jesus is not saying that we must like our enemies. And I think that's extremely important for us to note because in the way that we normally view things, liking precedes loving, doesn't it? We think of it normally, boy meets girl, boy likes girl, girl likes boy, and eventually they spend enough time together that they start to love each other. But Jesus says we're to love first. We may or may not grow to like our enemies. We might not ever agree with their opinion. We might not ever approve of their conduct. I don't think that Jesus calls us to like members of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever the Middle Eastern threat of the week is. I don't think Jesus calls us to like the dirty politician who takes money under the table. I don't think Jesus calls us to like the deranged gunman. but we're to love them. Jesus commanded us to love them. So what does that mean? What is Jesus saying when he tells us to love our enemies? First of all, it means that we're not to insist on our own rights, but we are instead to overcome evil with good. And that comes through clearly in the sort of examples that Jesus gives here in verses 38 through 42. The concept here, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That concept of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that comes straight to us from the law of Moses. Though it's something that we find in other ancient cultures, and in fact many of its principles are in the law even up to modern times. This is the lex talionis, or the law of retribution. And the fundamental idea here is one of commensurate punishment. That is, I have been injured, I've been wronged in some way. 
My mic went off. I think my batteries are dead. I knew it sounded different. I've been wronged in some way, and the punishment that occurs as a result is commensurate with what I've done. It's equal to the injury, so we're limiting the punishment here. That's most succinctly stated in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 21. Your eye shall not pity. Remember that. I think that's important as the preamble. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You see, then this is important. Jesus doesn't merely limit unjust retaliation. The law already did that. That's the purpose of this law. Instead, Jesus says not to retaliate in kind at all. Do good instead. In effect, that preamble to what it says in Deuteronomy, your eyes shall show no pity, don't show pity. Jesus flips that around. Show pity. Be merciful. And the examples that he gives here demonstrate grace, mercy beyond any expectation that we could have. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. You think about that? Your right cheek? Most people are right-handed. Can't slap someone on the right cheek that way. This is a backhand. In ancient times, this would have been a gross insult. It's the sort of thing that actually had penalties at the law. You were entitled to slap someone back. Most of these actual eye-for-eye eye things had been replaced by fines by Jesus' day, so you were entitled to some sort of monetary justice. But in this almost laughable scene, Jesus says, don't worry about that. Turn the other one to them instead. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, the tunic was the undergarment. This is roughly equivalent of your shirt. Jesus says if they try to do that, go ahead and give them the outer garment, the coat too. If you actually look back at the law of Moses, under the law, you weren't entitled to take the cloak from an Israelite for any length of time because this was not just an outer garment. This was a cover. It was protection from the elements. It was a blanket that you used at night to sleep. But Jesus says, don't insist upon that. Just go ahead and give it to them too. Abandon your rights. If anyone would force you to go a mile, Roman soldiers could compel this. Jesus says, just go ahead and go the second one with them too. That's radically different from the zealot option. There were a lot of people in Jesus' day who wanted to kill the Romans, throw them out by force. Jesus says, far from that, just agree to go ahead and go that other mile with them. Give to the one who begs. Don't refuse the one who would borrow. There's no expectation here of being paid back in any way. No expectation of exacting interest from them. All this is summed up in Jesus' life and in the way that Isaiah talks about him as the suffering servant. We could look at Isaiah chapter 50 in particular, beginning in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Meekness is not 
weakness. This is not the stuff of inactivity. This is doing something, but you notice these actions are unexpected. This subverts the power of Rome. This shows just how foolish their wickedness is, and it trusts in God for vindication instead. Secondly, in returning good for evil, we seek the welfare of our enemy. Now that should be clear enough from our text here. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those two statements are in parallel. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. When we're talking about those who persecute us as our enemies, we're not just talking here about people who are mean, people who don't say nice things about us. In Jesus' day, we're talking about those who could imprison you, those who could beat you, those who could kill you. Taking up the cross and following Jesus was a literal thing in the first century. But rather than hating them, rather than retaliating against them, Jesus says we're to pray for them. If we believe that prayer really works, that's possibly the most powerful thing that we could possibly do for our enemy. But if you want to make it more overt and see that loving our enemies means to be for them, to will their good, look at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says in verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. All of this rooted in what we usually call the golden rule. To do to others as we would have them do to us. When Jesus says love your neighbor, he's quoting directly from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 18. And of course Jesus himself elevated this to a cardinal principle. When you remember on one occasion someone came and asked him, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second, it's near to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus elevated this to the ground of all our interactions with others. But to love your neighbor as yourself, that's hard. That's almost as hard as loving your enemy. And so our natural inclination is to try to limit that, to try to draw that neighborhood as small as we possibly can. We want some wiggle room here. There's no evidence of anyone in Jesus' day actually saying, hate your enemy. But it's certainly the way this command was lived out by many of his contemporaries. The Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all to one degree or another, they hated the Romans, they hated the Samaritans, they hated all Gentiles, they even hated Jews who were from different sects, who had different beliefs than they did. You see, they restricted the neighborhood to those who were like them. 
They only loved people who were already lovable. But Jesus says, not only love your neighbors, love your enemies. And I think here the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10 is instructive. I'm not going to read it for time's sake. Most of us probably know the story about a Jew who is beaten and robbed and left for dead on the road to Jericho. A priest passes by and does nothing. A Levite passes by and does nothing. But here along comes a Samaritan. He binds up his wounds. He takes him to an inn. He pays for his continued care. And normally when we talk about that parable, we talk about the message in terms of, well, we need to be good. We need to do good deeds, be compassionate on all people. And that's true. But when we rip this parable out of its historical and its literary context, we miss the main point, the shocking point that it's trying to make. There was a whole body of Jewish literature in Jesus' day that relied on the good deeds of the ordinary Jew, sort of like the rule of three in comedy. Lots of stories by the sages were set up this way. And that's what his audience was prepared for. You know, a priest came by and should have acted and he didn't. A Levite came by and should have acted and he didn't. And now the audience is prepared for the fact that, well, now some ordinary Jew, some regular farmer, some shepherd, he's going to come by and do what God would have him to do. But instead, what Jesus says sends shockwaves through the audience because it's not an ordinary Jew. It's a Samaritan who does the neighborly thing. A Samaritan was the hero. To Jesus' audience, the very idea of a good Samaritan was an oxymoron. There wasn't any such thing. Samaritans were despised. They were a, a mongrel race. They were hated because their bloodline wasn't pure. They were hated because they had mixed the Torah with all sorts of other superstitions. We can't miss the context that brings forth this parable. Because that gives us the most dramatic point that it makes. Even our enemy is our neighbor. That is the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have to remember the context in Luke chapter 10 and verse 29. A, a lawyer has come to him here and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law. How do you read it? And he lists off those two great commandments. Jesus says, that's right. And then, as Luke says, wanting to justify himself, that is wanting to justify himself for only loving those who were like him rather than loving everyone, he says, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story in response, and then he says, which one was a neighbor to that man? And the lawyer, who hates Samaritans so much that he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, he says, well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, go and do likewise. You want to keep the sting in that parable? Who would be the equivalent of the Samaritan to us? The Muslim is my neighbor. The refugee is my neighbor. The deranged gunman is my neighbor. How do I love them? How do I be for their good? 
We must love our enemies because that's fulfilling that greatest commandment to love our neighbors. The commandment's clear enough. It's straightforward to love your enemies. And unfortunately, I think for most of us, our enemies are clear enough also. The difficulty here is in application. Why do we have to love our enemies? How do we do it? And of course, when we get down to applications here, most of the objections to the straightforward meaning of what Jesus says are rooted in practical suggestions. So I'd say, first of all, on application, what Jesus says isn't rooted in pragmatism. That is, we don't love our enemies because it's good strategy. We don't do it because it's the smart thing to do, the practical thing to do. We certainly don't do it because it's the natural thing to do. And that's important because, as I said, most of the objections to this are rooted in those practical considerations. Well, what if we really took him at face value here? That can't really mean what it seems to mean. You can't be serious, right? And then we get into the hypotheticals. Come on, preacher. What if everyone in the country thought like that? Do you think we should just demilitarize? Do you think we shouldn't have an army? Well, I don't mean to be glib here, but the country will do what the country will do. And that's not really my concern. I follow Jesus. And I'm talking what we must do individually as citizens of his kingdom. My citizenship is in the kingdom of God, first and foremost. And incidentally, on that note, as we stand here perhaps on the brink of another war in the Middle East, Christianity is not at war with Islam. Now, that's not because I'm trying to soft-pedal what Muslims believe in any way. I'm not going to be politically correct here. As a historian, I know that Muhammad spread Islam at the point of a sword. But what I'm saying is that Christianity doesn't spread at the point of a gun. Some radical Muslims may be at war with Christians, but regardless of what the United States does or doesn't do, Christians are not at war with Muslims. Do you think we shouldn't have police then? I mean, if we really applied this literally, we'd have evildoers running around all over the place. They resist evil with force. Well, that's a function given to the state by God. Look at Romans chapter 13. The state has that God-given right and function to resist evil. And in fact, that's something that they carry out with his authority. We have those in this congregation who serve in uh, police forces. One of our elders, Bobby, is a sheriff. There's Jacob who's in the police. There are others I know of, family members. We're not talking about that. These are all red herrings. We're talking here about what Christians must do as Christians. It's interesting that all of these objections come down to what's useful. But Christians shouldn't be concerned with what's useful as much as we should be concerned with faithfulness. And as far as practical considerations go, we can say safely that some things are not in keeping with the love of the enemy. I've been deeply disturbed this week, much of what prompted this lesson. I have been disturbed by those holding up what happened in that church in White Settlement as a sort of model. 
even to the point of, of having memes almost gleefully talking about what happened. Effectively saying, hey, if you come at us, we're going to blow you away. Let me be really clear here because we're swimming in some deep waters. I know it. So let me be as clear as I can be. I'm not in any way condemning the actions of the brothers and sisters at that church. I think that Brother Wilson acted courageously. I think that his actions saved lives. Saving lives is always a good thing. And I think we can study this text and study other texts and good Christians who are trying to follow Jesus can come down on opposite sides of the issue when they feel that loving your neighbor means that I will use force, even lethal, lethal force if necessary, to defend my innocent neighbor. I fully respect those sincere Christians who have that opinion. But let me say this. That must be a last resort. Even if we think that that is something, an option that is open to us as Christians, that must be the last possible thing that we do. Once all other efforts have been taken, all other avenues exhausted. You see, the problem with these hypotheticals like the military and the police are, of course, the ultimate hypothetical. What would you do if someone with a gun was coming in and was going to kill your wife or your daughter or your son or whatever is that they limit us by their nature to only two options. I'm not sure that there always are only two options. And I could talk about stories where people who found a third way out and I could talk about how Jesus here in this text gives us an option other than laying down and doing nothing and fighting back. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there are some situations where there are only those two options. And let's say that situation last Sunday was one of those. I've seen many people talking about the necessity of churches having a security strategy. That's true. But our strategy, first of all, must be rooted in faith in God rather than trust in ourselves and our own power. Our strategy, our security, must be rooted in hope in the resurrection rather than fear of death. Our security must be rooted in love of enemies rather than a parochial love of just our own people. Because if we only love the people in this room, then we're not any better than the tax collectors and the Gentiles. We don't reflect the love of our Father. Our security strategy should mourn the use of force should mourn death because death is the enemy of Christians. Death is what Jesus came to destroy rather than, rather than glorifying it as don't mess with Texas. We must love our enemies because in doing so, we emulate our heavenly father. Jesus says he sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. That means we don't make a distinction between who is and who is not worthy of our love. We are perhaps on the brink of another war with the Middle East. 
And so we tend to think of the Muslim as our enemy. Unfortunately, in this country, for many, the black person is the enemy of the white person. The white person is the enemy of the black person. The brown person is the enemy of both of them, and vice versa. The Republican, even for Christians, is the enemy of the Christian Democrat. And the Christian Democrat is the enemy of the Christian Republican. And that's before we even get down to those people that you meet on the street every day or that you run into at Walmart that you might feel are your personal enemies. As I said, I'm not saying we have to like these people. We may be justified in our hard feelings against them. We might be justified in being angry. We may not ever agree with some of these groups or individuals. But we're called to love them, to make them our neighbors. Because in doing this, we become perfect, perfect in love, like our Heavenly Father who sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Finally, we're to love our enemies because that's what Jesus did. And it's curious to me that when we talk about what he means here, we never really look at his example. If we really want to understand what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to look at his exegesis by example. Look at the way he lived out what he says here in the text. When they came to arrest him, Peter was armed. He pulled out a sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Peter was defending an innocent life with force. Jesus said, sheathe your sword. Whoever lives by it will die by it. That's worth us pondering, I think, what it means in terms of defense of the innocent. And maybe we're tempted to say, well, that's Jesus. He had to go and die. Well, for one thing, that denies his humanity, that he had a choice. But for another thing, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. The early Christians took that example seriously. But beyond that, we know for a fact, all heaven, when Jesus was arrested, stood there ready to fight legions of angels at his command. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom isn't of this world. If it was like the kingdoms of this world, then my servants would fight. But the fact that they didn't was proof that it wasn't from this world. Creation itself rebelled as the sky darkened, the earth shook, the veil of the temple tore in two. And Jesus looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, friends, we're included in that. We put Jesus on that cross. We were his enemies. Paul says that emphatically in Romans chapter 5. And yet he died for us. And he forgives us. If you've never accepted that forgiveness, won't you come and do it this morning? By putting your trust in that Jesus who died for you, turning to God in repentance, being buried in the waters of baptism, be added to his people, begin to live out that radical life of discipleship he calls you to. Maybe you are a Christian and you haven't emulated Jesus in this call to love your enemy. Or maybe there's some other sin in your life that you need to repent of in a public way.
If we can help you in any way, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.